You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Bob Crawford. This is Founding Son, John Quincy's America. It's a summer morning, 1839. The hatch leading below the deck of the ship lifted. A hard shaft of light shot through the dank, fetid ship's hold. Joseph Sinke winced as he struggled to open his eyes. Dazed, unsure of his surroundings. Pain shot through his legs. He tried to lift them. They wouldn't budge. He was chained to a long line of men, women, and children. Months had passed since he was in his village in what is now Sierra Leone. He was surrounded by water. No idea where he was, how he got here, or where he was going. When the sun shined, Sinke and the other captives were brought to the deck for fresh air, while the cabin boy shoveled out the excrement from the slave quarters. Sinke took the opportunity to familiarize himself with his surroundings, taking note of everything he saw aboard the ship named Amistad. There was a captain, a cook, and a handful of crew members. The details are murky, but somehow, perhaps with the nail he'd found in the ship's waterlogged boards, Sinke unchained himself and the other captives. When night fell, they stormed the deck, found a cache of machetes, and seized the moment. They killed the captain and they killed the cook on board. Mary Elliott is the curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. 
And then they forced the two men on board to help them navigate back to Africa, back to Sierra Leone. Cinque and the other Africans had no idea the men who were now their captives were enslavers. The very men responsible for their abduction. These men didn't steer the ship back to Africa. Those two men actually managed to navigate the ship into the U.S. waters. They were spotted off the coast of Long Island. A lieutenant named Thomas Gedney looked out from his ship to see a vessel in tatters, bedraggled sails, and a colorfully dressed black crew. Quite a curious sight. Gedney and his crew boarded the suspicious vessel, and they could tell right away what had gone down. The human cargo of the Amistad had risen up and slaughtered their captors. Gedney took charge of the Amistad and brought the vessel to nearby Connecticut. Cinque and the dozens of other captives were arrested, charged with murder and piracy, placed in a prison cell to await trial. Their story hit the newspapers the next day. A bloody slave insurrection on the high seas. Overnight, it became a national sensation. Were these African captives heroes struggling for freedom or murderers? The headlines shattered the peace and quiet John Quincy Adams was hoping to enjoy during a break at his home, Peacefield. He was preparing for the next session of Congress, but couldn't get the homicide case out of his head. He knew he shouldn't get involved. He also knew he couldn't help himself. Chapter 5 Amistad. The case of the Amistad ignited America's debate over slavery like never before. This becomes a cause celeb for the American abolition movement because you've got roughly 50 African people who struck for their freedom in a jail cell in New Haven. Richard Newman is a professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology. He says there were a lot of people trying to re-enslave the African captives now living in a jail cell. And Lieutenant Gedney, who commandeered the ship, was trying to win salvage rights for the human property he found aboard the Amistad. He estimates that the property and the enslaved people themselves are worth about $65,000 at the time. And so he wants to cash in on this. And abolitionists rushed to the scene to try to aid the Amistad rebels and to oppose anything that would re-enslave them. Black and white abolitionists seized the moment. They rallied around the case, raised money, recruited new anti-slavery activists. And while this was becoming a great moment for abolitionists, it threatened to destroy the coalition keeping President Martin Van Buren in power. The Van Buren administration was built on a north-south coalition, and the last thing he wanted was a national case which could split that coalition between Southerners who viewed this as a life-and-death issue and Northerners who maybe would have been more inclined to uh, side with the captives. That's John Quincy Adams biographer James Traub. He says Van Buren's problems didn't end at home. 
The international problem was one that any such administration would have faced, which is that the captives were seen as property of Spanish nationals. These Spanish nationals were the two enslavers aboard the Amistad who survived, Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montes. They appealed to the local courts and the Van Buren administration to have their human cargo returned to them under America's 1795 treaty with Spain. The Spanish government also demanded that Van Buren return the captives to Cuba, still a Spanish colony, and the ship's original destination. That's where they should stand trial for murder. This is not about people. It's about things. It would have required them to return those things to Spain if Spain requested them. John Quincy Adams found it impossible to escape the Amistad case. Even in the solitude of his Massachusetts home, old friends and newspapers reached out repeatedly. Adams, you have too great a voice to remain silent, they argued. What is your opinion on the case? As pressure mounted, Adams kept his lips sealed. In his diary, he wrote, Prudence would forbid my giving an opinion upon it at any time. And if I ever do, it must be with great consideration and self-control. While many tried to pull Adams into the case, there were important people pleading with him to stay out of it. His surviving son, Charles Francis, was in the middle of a campaign for the Massachusetts State House at the time. He begged him not to get in any deeper with the radical abolitionists. When his son says, you know... You don't want to get involved in this. What he's thinking is, this is a huge cause celeb. This could undermine everything you're working for. But John Quincy Adams thinks the opposite. John Quincy's wife, Louisa, also begged him not to get involved in the case. And he listened and stayed out, watching from afar. Meanwhile, abolitionist lawyers representing the African captives tried to get their side of the story. But the captives didn't speak a lick of Spanish. This was surprising. The two enslavers aboard the ship claimed the captives came from Cuba, not Africa. This is actually a big deal. The American government banned the import of slaves into the United States in 1808. No ship could come in from the continent of Africa importing people into the States, to sell into the slave trade. Mary Elliott again. So there was this sense of if someone was brought in from Africa, we cannot hold them as enslaved. Had they been brought directly to the United States, that would have clearly violated the prohibition of the Constitution against the slave trade. James Traub says the slave traders Montez and Ruiz were attempting to do something fairly common at this time. Essentially, slave laundering. What they tried to do, and this is not uncommon at the time, is they brought them to Cuba so that they could then claim that they had actually been in Spanish property all this while. They were not actually recently abducted people. And then they could, in effect, be rebranded as long-standing slaves from Cuba. If lawyers for the captured rebels could prove this, they could shatter Montez and Ruiz's case. But these lawyers had never heard any of the languages spoken by Cinque and the others, and they had no way to speak with their clients. Then, abolitionist leader Louis Tappan came across a sailor in New Haven who recognized 
that most of the captives were in fact known as Mendi. And he spoke a shared second language of the Mendi captives, a language called Vi. Finally, the captives were able to tell the story of violence and horror they endured. Just weeks later, their case kicked off in a district court in Connecticut. A man named Roger Sherman Baldwin defended them, and he had an impressive pedigree. Roger Sherman Baldwin was the grandson of Roger Sherman, the great Connecticut figure who was one of the signers of the Constitution. He is the, I don't know what, great-grandfather of the man who founded the American Civil Liberties Union, Roger Baldwin. So this is a man with a great lineage both before him and beyond him. When the case kicked off, Montez and Ruiz, the Spanish government, and Lieutenant Gedney all claimed some form of ownership of the captives. Roger Baldwin argued in their defense, explaining that these African prisoners were not murderers or slaves. They were free men, women, and children who had been forcibly kidnapped from their homes. Cinque sat on the floor of the court and held his hands together, clenched in fists, to show how they were manacled. When the testimony was complete, the judge ruled that the captives were, quote, natives of Africa and were born free and ever since have been and still of right are free and not slaves. The judge ordered the captives repatriated to Africa. They joined the abolitionists in a celebration over the ruling. But it didn't last long. The U.S. District Attorney, under direct pressure from the Van Buren administration, filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. Abolitionists representing the captives worried they wouldn't get the same ruling in the highest court of the land. The first trial took place in the northern state of Connecticut. The Supreme Court was made up of almost entirely enslavers. Panic took hold. They needed someone with gravitas and experience before the high court a not-so-secret weapon. In 1840, John Quincy Adams received a couple of visitors, a Boston abolitionist friend and Lewis Tappan, two longtime abolitionists who had helped found the American anti-slavery movement. Adams knew them because he had become the conduit for anti-slavery petitions. He was the only man in the Congress who was willing to speak up for the anti-slavery cause. And so the early anti-slavery figures looked to Adams as their champion. They pressed Adams to join the Amistad defense team. Roger Baldwin was a good lawyer, but this was prime time. They needed a well-known champion for the national stage of the Supreme Court. Adams thought they were crazy. He had seen too many winters to take on such an important case. He was in his 70s. His eyesight was fading. He had arthritis. No. The answer had to be no. Right? Initially, he really hesitated. But knowing Adams, you know, his character, the die was cast. He could never resist a situation which would allow him to champion the cause of lonely, discarded people uh, who were seeking their liberty. Later, Adams recorded in his diary, 
They urged me so much and represented the case of those unfortunate men as so critical, it being a case of life and death, that I yielded and told them that if by the blessing of God my health and strength should permit, I would argue the case before the Supreme Court. Adams took the case. When we come back, it's the trial of the century. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great tasting all natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. John Quincy Adams had no time to waste getting up to speed with the Amistad case. It was the fall of 1840, and the Supreme Court hearing was scheduled for February of 1841. The ex-president headed for New Haven, Connecticut, to meet with his new co-counsel, Roger Baldwin. He exposed to me his views of the case, the points which had been taken before the district and circuit courts, and the motion to dismiss the appeal, which he supposes the proper course to be taken before the Supreme Court. Shortly after his arrival, Baldwin took Adams to visit the captives. The government's claim that they are property, in fact, has not been accepted. It's been reversed by the courts. But they're being held pending appeal in a a kind of a courtyard area where they they wander around. They have rooms. James Traub says the captives had been living in this purgatory for years when Adams met with them. Many started to learn English, including Sinke, the group's leader. Adams was struck, especially by this figure who was known as Sinke, who became the leader and who, who became a 
romantic figure in America. He was one of the most drawn uh, figures and then photographed uh, in the country. So he must have been a very impressive person. And Adams was really struck. And so I think that experience made him think, I must help these people. As the trial date drew near, Adams searched for legal precedents that would free the captives. He then throws himself into this and spends countless hours with the slaves, hearing their story, but also researching the case law. Because there have been several other cases where slaves had mutinied and got themselves to the United States and then sought to claim that they were free. But many of these cases had ended badly, and Adams knew it. While he was president, the Supreme Court ruled on a mutiny aboard the Spanish slave ship, the Antelope. The chief justice at the time, John Marshall, ruled that international law barred the liberation of the Antelope's human cargo. Adams started to worry. Just when the stakes couldn't seem higher, he received a letter from one of the captives, a Mendy boy named Kale. We want you to ask the court what we have done wrong. What for Americans keep us in prison? Some people say, Mendy people crazy. Mendy people don't because we not talk American language. American people not talk Mendy language. American people crazy dots. Arguments before the Supreme Court started on February 22nd, George Washington's birthday. Attorney General Henry Gilpin presented the case for the United States. He argued that the Amistad was a Spanish vessel, carrying cargo approved by the country's authorities. Therefore, the United States was obligated by treaty to restore the ship and its cargo to the rightful owners, the Spanish government. That way, the Spanish authorities could try them for piracy and murder. After Gilpin's opening arguments, it was time for John Quincy and his co-counsel to make their case. Baldwin kicked off the defense, saying that the whole world was watching. This case is not only one of deep interest in itself, as affecting the destiny of the unfortunate Africans whom I represent, but it involves considerations deeply affecting our national character in the eyes of the whole civilized world. It presents for the first time the question whether the government, which was established for the promotion of justice, which was founded on the great principles of the revolution as proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, can, consistently with the genius of our institutions, become a party to proceedings for the enslavement of human beings cast upon our shores and found in the condition of freemen within the territorial limits of a free and sovereign state? Baldwin continued, saying the captives aboard the ship were kidnapped and forced into bondage. Why would the U.S. government hand them back to their captors? Sinke, the master spirit who guided them, had a single object in view. That object was not piracy or robbery, but the deliverance of himself and his companions in suffering from unlawful bondage. When he finished, Adams thought Baldwin had done a great job laying out the legal argument for the defense. But where was the showmanship? 
They needed to break through to these justices, show them the importance of this moment. John Quincy wrote in his diary that Baldwin had been sound and eloquent, but exceedingly mild and moderate. Adams had to bring the heat. When Adams stood before the court, he was no longer the mild-mannered president he once was. Years of shouting down Southerners in Congress had given him an edge, a ferocity. If any part of this article was applicable to the case, it was in favor of the Africans. They were in distress and were brought into our waters by their enemies, by those who sought and who are still seeking to reduce them from freedom to slavery as reward for having spared their lives in a fight. Adams railed for over four hours building his case. If the good offices of the government are to be rendered to the proprietors of shipping in distress, they are due to the Africans only, and the United States are now bound to restore the ship to the Africans and replace the Spaniards on board as prisoners. The court adjourned for the day, deciding Adams could finish the next day. But overnight, one of the justices died. The court sat in recess for a week to mourn Justice Philip Barber. When arguments resumed, Adams launched back into it. This was the great age of oratory, and the idea is you just got up and talked. Well, nobody could talk longer or better than Adams could. He argued that the 1795 treaty with Spain did not apply in this case. Because these people were not chattels, merchandise. They had been illegally stolen. But Adams, being Adams, wasn't there to simply make a legal argument. He was arguing for the soul of the nation. This was bigger than case law. This was foundational. Adams pointed to the Declaration of Independence. The moment you come to the Declaration of Independence that every man has a right to life, and liberty, and inalienable right. This case is decided. I ask nothing more in behalf of these unfortunate men than this declaration. He was speaking to a court that consisted in almost entirely of slave owners or slave sympathizers. Adams called out the names of justices he stood in front of decades ago. For a moment, it was almost as if he was conjuring them from the grave. Marshall, Cushing, Chase, Washington, Johnson, Livingston, Todd, where are they? Alas, where is one of the very judges of this court, arbiters of life and death, before whom I commenced this anxious argument? Where are they all? They're gone, 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 gone from the services which in their day and generation they faithfully rendered to their country. It's mind-blowing. Richard Newman again. He says Adams focused the men sitting before him on a single idea, justice. And he says, I thought the Supreme Court, like the American Republic, was dedicated to the principle of justice. And whether or not it's an enslaved person struggling for justice or an American citizen struggling for justice, that's the principle that should define international law, American politics, and American jurisprudence. When Adams rapped, a reporter wrote that, quote, the closing part of the speech was the most touching and affecting of anything of kind 
to which I ever listened. He added, old man eloquent had given his all. Adams, however, had more to give. When he finished presenting his case, he tidied up his papers on his desk, packed them into his satchel, and walked from the old Supreme Court chambers in one part of the Capitol to his desk on the House floor in another. The Supreme Court back then was actually faster in issuing verdicts than it is today. The court came back with its ruling just a week and a half later. But in that short time, a new president had taken office. On March 4th, 1841, William Henry Harrison of Ohio was inaugurated as the ninth president of the United States. Martin Van Buren was out. Would the court case his administration set in motion be decided in his favor? Justice Joseph Story issued the majority opinion of the court. He wrote, They are natives of Africa and were kidnapped there and were unlawfully transported to Cuba in violation of the law and treaties of Spain and the most solemn edicts and declarations of that government. The court ruled seven to one in favor of the captives. It's pretty clear that before John Quincy Adams actually gave this oration, that some members of the court were leaning in this direction. The ground had already been tilled. But I'm also sure that John Quincy Adams, as a former president, a renowned statesman, someone who'd been on the front lines of the gag rule debates, and then someone who actually gave this great multi-hour speech on the side of justice, convinced people on the Supreme Court that they couldn't go backwards. They couldn't support the extradition of the Amistad slave rebels after all that had Britain written about it. And I'm pretty sure that that convinces at least a few people like Joseph Story to support the Amistad slave rebels. Story later described Adams' argument as extraordinary for its power and its bitter sarcasm and its dealings with topics far beyond the record and points of discussion. Ecstasy rippled through the abolitionist communities. In the jail, however, the captives were cut off from the outside world. They were still nervously awaiting the news. Then, an abolitionist arrived with the newspaper. The big court has come to a decision. They say that you, one and all, are free. The captives were skeptical. They had been let down by previous rulings time and again. Bacale, the group's best reader, took a look at the paper. It was true. They were going home. The nation celebrated. Not only the ruling, but Adams. He had successfully defended the founding ideals of the nation when it mattered most. His son was a different story. Charles Francis wrote to his father, It may be very interesting to yourself and the public to be pleading in the Supreme Court, but I must admit that I do not greatly admire the anxiety it occasions to those of us who do not regard it simply as a show. And his wife, Louisa, was just glad it was over. John Quincy Adams did the right thing, and he did it knowing that he was the only one doing the right thing. Louisa Thomas is a biographer of Louisa Adams. And he did it against Louisa's wishes, and she did come around, you know, and his involvement in the Amistad case. Abolitionists raised funds through the spring and summer to send the captives back home. In November, they began their journey. Before their departure, Adams received a gift, a Bible signed by Cinque and Kale, 
on behalf of them all. Friends pushed Adams to make a public show of the gift, but that wasn't his style. This was a private moment between him and the people he had befriended. And Mr. Lewis Tappan has been extremely desirous to having this done by a public exhibition and ceremony, which I have repeatedly and inflexibly declined from a clear conviction of its impropriety and an invincible repugnance to exhibiting myself as a public rare show. John Quincy cherished the gift. If you go to Peacefield, it's the kind of prized possession. I mean, he was immensely proud of his work on that case, as he had every right to be. The Amistad case was a victory for Cinque and his fellow captives. Abolitionists had dealt the slaveocracy a decisive blow with Adams landing the knockout punch. It was a defining moment for America's founding son. It elevated him from a failed ex-president to a national hero. On the next Founding Son. Do not cry. I hope to meet you all in heaven. This was a time when even Boston was having, you know, condolence parades for the fallen Andrew Jackson, but John Quincy Adams was true to himself. Jackson was a hero, a murderer, an adulterer, and a profoundly pious Presbyterian who in his last days of his life belied and slandered me before the world. Founding Son is a curiosity podcast brought to you by iHeart Podcasts, and School of Humans. For help with this episode, we want to thank Mary Elliott, curator of American slavery at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. James Traub, author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit. Richard Newman, professor of history at Rochester Institute of Technology. Louisa Thomas, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. Our lead producer, story editor, and sound designer is James Morrison. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Fact-checking by Adam Bisno. This episode was mixed and mastered by George Hicks. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Original music by me, Bob Crawford. Additional scoring is by Blue Dot Sessions. John Quincy Adams is voiced by Patrick Warburton. Andrew Jackson is voiced by Nick Offerman. Louisa Adams is voiced by Gray Delisle. Additional voices in this episode provided by Ken Burns, Scott Avon, Owen P. Osborne, Ben Sawyer, and Mike Coscarelli. Show art designed by Darren Schock. Casting support provided by Breakdown Services. Special thanks to John Higgins, Julia Criscal and the Massachusetts Historical Society. If you are a fan of the podcast, please give it a five-star rating in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. This podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. I'm your host, Bob Crawford. Thanks for listening. 
School of Humans. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.